If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, friend, and welcome back to another episode of In the Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen. Today, my guest is Danny Innie, founder and CEO of Miracy, a company that provides training and support for entrepreneurs looking to build and launch profitable online courses. Danny is also a best-selling author, and he started out with no experience, uh, a lot of personal debt, he would tell you, and through hard work and dedication, along with his business partner and talented wife, He grew the business to multiple eight figures in revenue. He now leads a team that is a global team spread all over the world who are on a mission to support a very special community of more than 100,000 loyal and inspired entrepreneurs. Danny is a heart-based business owner, and he's committed to learning and transparency because as a teacher, speaker, trainer, and advisor, he freely shares what he has learned with the online entrepreneurial community. Cannot wait to jump into this conversation. I know I have a lot to learn, and I'm sure you do too. So let's get in the details with Danny. Welcome, friend. How are you? I am great. I'm very excited to be here. I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that stuck out to me was the name of your company, Miracy. And I was like, okay, not a word I've heard before. And then I found out there's a reason why I haven't uh, heard this word before. You were very intentional about naming your company Miracy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's a whole story behind it. So the company, when I founded it, was called Firepole Marketing. And the way that we arrived at that name is that at the time I had a business partner, he was around for like the first five minutes and then went off to do other stuff. But we were sitting in a cafe over breakfast trying to come up with a name for the business. And we'd come up with a name. We're like, we like that. And then we'd Google it. Oh, no, it's taken. And we'd go through about 200 cycles of this. And we're getting very tired, running out of ideas. We're like, well, what about fire pole? Because, you know, when your business is burning down, you don't have time for the stairs. And we search and it's available and it's like, great. Okay. We never did anything with like that first responder imagery or messaging. It's actually very counter to the way that I like to teach about marketing. It's not about like fast, get rich, quick results. It's really about solid foundations. But that was our name when we started. And it wasn't a great name even at the beginning, but it became more and more out of alignment with what we were becoming and evolving into. And it got to the point where like I would be at a conference and I'd meet someone. They say, so what's your business? And I would cringe because I don't want to tell them. Mm. And that's how you know it's time for a new name. Yes. So <laughs> recognizing that I'm clearly not good at picking names for companies, we engaged a, a consultant that this is what she does. She helps companies find, find names. And so we went back and forth and explored a whole bunch of different ideas and nothing felt quite right. And we finally land on a name that we're like, you know, we don't love it, but we could live with it. It's like good enough. Okay. So we, we start doing the, the, the checking and we buy the domain, which is a premium domain. It costs tons of money and quite a ways into the process. We get a note from our attorney saying, if you go with this name, there's a good chance that IBM will sue you. And we're like, okay, back to the drawing board. (laughs) So we're like, you know what, let's, let's go with a coined name, which means a name that we made up. So nobody can sue us for using it. And the consultant gives you a list of like, you know, 40 different options. And these are just basically like, they're gibberish, right? They're they're just different syllables strung together. And you read a bunch of these in, in a row. And it's like, I don't, you know, it, it feels like you're, you're just not, make, not making any sense at all. 
<laughs> we go through a bunch of rounds of this, and finally we get to Miracy, which is a coined name. It's made up, but the Latinate roots, Mira means to look or to wonder. And in English, of course, see is to, to see what you can see. So it kind of connotes wondering at what could be or what could be seen, which is what we're all about. So it was a very long process to get there, but I'm happy with where it took us. But I like how uh, you mentioned that you had a word, but it was tied to something else. And so in this case, you decided to give the company and its name a fresh start with a word that nobody would, you know, have anything tied or associated with it. And I actually went through a very similar process because I loved Gwyneth Paltrow's goop. And I was like, it's literally not like goop is like something that you would use in a conversation with a three-year-old, right? Like that's how, other than that, people aren't saying goop until she used that for her publication in the platform. So I started to play with different words. And while most people just know Karen Allen, I came up with the name for my company. <laughs> Similarly, the way you did, it's like just putting words together and hoping it would make sense. And I came up with the grow flow because I like to help people grow and flow with life. So immediately I picked up on the fact that this was such a unique name and I knew there had to be a story behind it. So thank you for sharing. And, and I am curious, it takes a lot of courage, as I read in, in your bio and shared earlier, to go from a place of deficit and decide to still keep going, to still get in the game, to still put yourself out there and to still reach for a, a dream or this you know, intrinsic motivation that you just can't shake. So I am curious, with all that bravery, what was it like early on in that transition? What was your mindset like? And was there anything that you did that really helped you to stay the course, even in the midst of those challenging times? So, so that's a big question and a very flattering characterization. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> I think my experience was not quite as flattering. So just to share a little bit of the backstory without going into the details unless you want me to. But when I was in my, I guess it would have been mid-20s, um, I was trying to build an educational software startup company. And we had some interesting ideas and we got a lot of good feedback. Um, we raised some money from friends and family and stuff like that. But long story, very short, I was a very young and very inexperienced CEO in what in hindsight is an incredibly complicated industry. And by the time I figured out what I needed to do. Like we had just bled a ton of money. So it's time to reboot. It's time to create a new plan. We make that plan. We're getting ready to pound the pavement, raise some more money. That was September of 2008. The markets crashed. There was no money to be had and it all just imploded all around me. So kind of game over. And I didn't want to go to my investors who were friends and family and say, you know, sorry, your money's gone. So I took the losses on personally. So I walked away from that with about a quarter of a million dollars in personal debt. Now, that's not just a lot of debt. That is so much debt that it constrains your options a little bit, right? So yeah. I, I kind of did the math in my head. I'm like, let's say I get you know a decently paying job that I could get at the time. And I live in my parents' basement and I live on ramen noodles and peanut butter. Yeah. And I take everything I earn and I put it towards paying off my debt. I'm still going to be doing that for like 50 years. I'm like, did you do the math and did that number scare you? <laughs> yes. Like I, I didn't, I was like, this is going to be my whole life. So it's yeah. like, this is not really, that's not a viable option. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of this place of like, you know, I, I'm in deep enough that, you know, I've got to find a way to, to have a, a nonlinear upside if things work. 
And so that was scary for sure. And I took action and moved forward, but you know, my options were a little bit limited. So uh, when I teach about uh, mindset, I, I like to give the example of, you know, the flashy, you know, you're hanging off a mountain by one arm courage. And it's like, yes, on the one hand, it's brave, but on the other hand, it's like, where, where else are you going to go? Right. Your, your mm-hmm. options are very limited at that stage. So I don't think that's courageous in the same way that, frankly, there are a lot of people who maybe they don't have any debt. Maybe they don't have those same constraints. But they've got a comfortable life, a comfortable job, the the so-called golden handcuffs. Walking away from that is is a lot harder. I mean, what was my alternative, really? It was mm-hmm. it was limited. So not that it wasn't scary. And yes, courage is, you know, not being unafraid, but acting despite the fear. But it's so it's aided a lot by a lack of alternatives. And that's why entrepreneurs tend to be very good at pulling rabbits out of their hats when they're, you know, backed up against a wall in a corner and nowhere to go. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, I can tell you that I relate to that very much. Part of my journey is that in the year that I became widowed and I lost so many different things, I also lost my job. And I remember feeling maybe about three months before that, I got this little inkling that. I don't think I should be here anymore, but I don't know where to go. And I certainly did not know that I was going to be terminated in the next 90 days. And so I remember sobbing in my car, feeling like a complete loser and also being a single parent, just feeling like, okay, I failed. I've absolutely failed myself. I failed my son. But then I said, okay, I don't think I would have had the courage to take that leap on my own. It's like this forced me into a space where I had to just straight up decide what are you going to do? Now you're here. Where do you go from here? And I would also say out of desperation, (laughs) I was like, well, I'm going to try this thing out of being an entrepreneur. And let me tell you, you don't know what you don't know until you get there and you realize you don't know a whole lot. But I do, you know, I still commend you because the alternative for us and for many people who share the story of it feels like I just had to figure it out is that the alternate is we could have decided to not to sit on our hands and to just, you know, find the the comfort zone, if you will. But this journey, it definitely comes with big upsides, large downsides as well. And I am curious at the beginning of Miracy, what were some of those big challenges that you faced in those early days, especially, you know, knowing where you came from and that, and that I'm sure maybe some of those fears of, you know, repeating some of the situations that brought you into a space of enormous debt. I'm sure that was in the back of your mind a little bit because it's natural for humans to keep account of the things that went wrong, even as we're trying to move forward. So what were some of the early challenges that you faced when you were launching uh, the company that you're running today? I mean, the challenges were very, very common, very typical and very unsexy. Right. People ask me sometimes, you know, what was your what was your vision when you created the company? And I'm like, my vision was to pay my rent reliably every month. That was that was the vision that I was working towards. And it's all the usual stuff. It's that you have a hypothesis about what will be valuable in the market, how you can help people. And then how do you align that with reality? How do you see where you're right and where you're wrong? How do you get to people and help them understand the value? And frankly, I made a lot of the mistakes that I now help a lot of entrepreneurs to avoid. I made the mistake of thinking that I knew so well what people want that, you know, I'll just create this. And then, of course, they'll want it. It'll be great. The often quoted and deeply misunderstood idea of, you know, if uh, Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, the Steve Jobs 
you know, the customer doesn't know what they want until you show it to them. It's like, yeah, but not in the way they were right. But the way that they are then quoted to rationalize, no, I just know best and I'll just do it is very wrong. There's something very democratic about entrepreneurship and marketing and business in that you can't make anybody want anything. You can only (laughs) give them the things that they actually do want. And so to the extent that you learn to listen to the market and read between the lines and understand what they want and engage them in that journey, you will be very successful. And to the extent that you do not, you won't. And so my challenges were learning these things and figuring these things out. It's hard to say how much of this is just because I was very young and naive and how much of this is kind of how I'm wired today because I mean, my circumstances are different today. Not to say that, you know, yeah, I had this big setback 15 years ago and that was the last one. It's like, obviously not. I've had many (laughs) since then and and I'm sure I will continue to have. That's just the nature of, you know, being a player in this game of life and and continuing to do interesting things. But I don't think I was in a headspace of, you know, I had this setback and I, I don't want to make the same mistake again. I think it was more in a headspace of, okay, what am I going to do next? What is my hypothesis of what I think is going to work? I, I try to take a very scientific approach to, to my work, to business, right? Everything is a test of hypotheses and either you're right and it works or you're wrong and you learn more in the, in, in the direction of what will work. Absolutely. Now that's something that not a lot of people, a perspective that not a lot of people carry and, you know, lots of reasons why, but we'll just say that, and many of my listeners know this, that I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I know that it is because in some way, shape or form, I started to create this story that things could be just right. It's going to be done just right. And overlooking the fact that in order for you to get to that end goal, there's going to be a ton of failure, a ton of mistakes, a ton of challenges along the way. But it sounds like from early on, you've accepted that that was just part of the process. I mean, this was very kind of implicit for me. I don't know that I ever made it explicit in that way, but I mean, so so you, you asked earlier about what mindset I kind of had to bring to, okay, I've got all this debt. How do I move forward? And something that I did kind of adopt that, I think runs counter to a lot of the uh, personal finance advice that I see out there is that, you know, rule of thumb, and and this is good advice uh, in general, right? Rule of thumb is if you're carrying a lot of debt, pay it off, right? Pay as much of, of it as you can off at a time. But because I had so much of it, I was like, it doesn't matter how aggressively I pay it off. If I just focus on doing that, it's like, I'm never going to get there. And so I I never missed a payment, right? You know, I consolidated the debt and I made my minimum payments every month. And I always tried to exceed the minimum payments at least a little bit. But as long as I was making the minimum payments and a little bit more, I was like, I don't need to accelerate the paying off of this debt. I need to accelerate my ability to earn more, Mm -hmm. right? That Mm -hmm. is how I I will get there. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that without kind of implicitly accepting that, you know, if my goal is to be better, that means there are things I don't yet know, mm-hmm. things I don't yet understand. And, and my goal is anytime we do anything, right? We're doing a launch, we're doing a campaign, we're launching a product. Yes, I want it to go well, but even more than I want it to go well, I want us to be better at this yes. after the campaign than we were before. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I feel like you're also not giving yourself a ton of credit. So I'm going to applaud you here, everybody here, <laughs> because again, these seem to be uh, innate characteristics that uh, now the question comes up, were you an entrepreneur in your teenage years? Like, were you selling candy to the kids in school? Like how far back does this go? So yes, I've been an entrepreneur. I like to say um, for longer than my adult life. I quit school when I was 15 to start my first business. And I, I think my first business would have been when I was 12 years old. And, I, and I that business that was? <laughs> yes. so, so, so yeah. So, and it wasn't some big, you know, complicated, you know, I was a hacker who built software. It was none of that, right? The situation was that uh, my school cafeteria had different options for lunch. And I got $2 every day from my parents to get lunch. And they had a, an option for $2. But the option I liked cost $3. And so I'm like, how do I make the extra dollar to get the lunch that I want? And my best friend, who I would have lunch with every day, um, would buy a Coke to go with his lunch. And that was a dollar. And I was like, hmm, I, I know he doesn't especially like Coke. So what's going on here? Well, he likes cream soda. They didn't have that at the cafeteria. So I was like, well, I can get a tray of cream soda cans from Costco for like five bucks and I will bring one and I will give it to my friend. He will give me the dollar he was going to spend anyway. And now he gets what he wants and I can get the the meal that I want at the cafeteria. And, and that's all being an entrepreneur really is. It's finding a creative way to solve a problem. Yeah. And so that business generated, you know, a dollar in profit per day, five days a week for uh, a bunch of months till I moved away towards the end of the year. I love this story for so many reasons, but the fact that you were able to identify an opportunity at 12 years old, you said? Yep. I, I mean, 12. I mean, I just, <laughs> I have a 12 year old, Danny. <laughs> I'm thinking about, he's a great kid, super responsible. Is he automatically seeing this opportunity to make money and how he's going to get what he wants? I don't know. A lot of 12 year olds are doing that. So again, a cut above the rest in a way that seems that it's just very, it's naturally wired in you. Do you have entrepreneurs also in your family who maybe influence your, your career path and, and your choice of even, you know, not going to school or stopping going to school, starting your own business at such a young age? What is that dynamic like around in, in the community that surrounds you? Yeah. So uh, on my dad's side, almost everyone was an entrepreneur. So my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My dad's uh, brother and sisters are all entrepreneurs. My dad is so not. So <laughs> he, he's like the exception. He has the the temperament and risk tolerance and training of an accountant. Okay. And so it wasn't in kind of the direct nurture. It could be, you know, in in the genes. When I quit school, so the story there is that if you'd known me as a kid, like I was the nerdiest goody two shoes. I was that kid, right? You know, teacher's pet, homework done before going home. I was, that That was me. And then I get into the ninth grade and it's like a switch flips in my head. I'm just sitting there in class and I'm like, I am so bored. I cannot take this anymore. And so I cut classes. I, I skipped school for a few days and I came back after a few days. I'm sitting in class and I'm like, they're still talking about the exact same thing. <laughs> And so I cut some more classes and I think you're already gathering from this conversation. I have a bit of an extreme personality, so I don't, I don't do anything halfway. And so in that first trimester of the ninth grade, I missed 152 periods and the number went up from there. And this goes on for about a year and a half. And after a year and a half, I, I, I just, one day I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, 
Danny, what the hell are you doing? Like, what's the plan? Am I going to spend the next four years just cutting classes and going to the gym and watching MTV? Because, you know, that's what there was to do at the time. We're watching like, TRL. Yes, we are. <laughs> I'm going to make it official and quit school and start a business. And uh, my dad was not comfortable with that. You picked that question right out of my head. I was going to say, how did your risk adverse father feel about that? He, he was not. He was concerned, as yeah. I think many parents would be. Sure. My mom was more supportive. Um, her perspective was she, she had not had a great time in school. And so she kind of, I think, understood the perspective a little bit more. But her perspective was that as long as I'm doing something productive with my time, then, you know, it's okay. And, and here's the thing. You can always go back to school. It's not an irreversible decision. And, and in fact, you know, later in, in life, um, I did go back to school. And I got an MBA, which if I look at those two decisions, the decision to quit school, one of the best decisions I ever made. The MBA, enormous waste of time and money mm -hmm. um, in hindsight. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about it is that those, so I have an elementary school diploma and I have an MBA. I have nothing in between, <laughs> right? And people are like, well, how, how did you do that? And so there are all kinds of, uh, you know, whether it's an executive MBA type program, whether there are mature student programs, there are programs that will allow you to kind of leapfrog over the previous step or steps if you do enough other interesting things or enough time has passed. And when it comes to the MBA, people are like, okay, you know, you've done all this interesting entrepreneurial stuff, so you can, we'll, we'll accept you on that. And people are like, well, what about high school? And I'm like, nobody asked. Everyone just assumes. So. <laughs> I love it. Well, you didn't mention what was the first uh, business that you started after quitting high school? So I did a bunch of stuff. So the my first first attempt at a business was building websites because you know I quit school. I'm like, what am, what am I going to do? And I knew a little bit of HTML. And anyone who knows anything about technology knows that that basically means I know nothing. <laughs> but I was like, I think I can build websites. And so I went kind of door to door to all the shops in my neighborhood. And I'm like, do you need a website? And this is how young and inexperienced I was. I didn't realize that the clerk at the counter in the store is not the person who makes that decision. <laughs> but I, I do this for a while. It never gets anywhere. I never made any money, never got any business. But then one day I'm sitting with a friend after he had come home from school. We're playing a video game with his little sister, one of these educational games. And he points at the screen. He's like, you know, this looks pretty simple. I'll bet you could build a game like this. And I say, you know, I'll bet I could. Now, no idea why. I didn't have, I couldn't. I didn't have any of the skills to do it. But I'm like, yeah, I'll bet I could. You have the personality trait, though, of I could do anything. And I like, yes, that's, I well, think a lot of entrepreneurs have of like, Well, you know, this looks fairly simple. How complicated could this be? I'm sure I could figure it out. Mm-hmm. I could figure it out. Yes. <laughs> so we find the box. This is back when, you know, software came in boxes and shrink wrap. So we find the box. I call up the company. I get a meeting with the CEO. And this is one of those things where in hindsight, I'm like, how did I do that? Yeah. But at the time, it didn't even, it didn't even register to me enough of being a big deal that I would even notice. It was like, it was a non-thing. I called them. I got a meeting. So I go in there. I'm 15 years old. I shake the guy's hand. I say, I have a business proposition for you. I think I can build the games that you sell. And uh, my mom has a degree in psychology. I tell him I've conferred with a psychologist. And I've come to the conclusion that if you really want these games to be impactful, the kids have to be having fun and kind of learning in the background. They shouldn't be doing math exercises on the screen. And what he could have said 
was, no kidding, I've been doing this for 10 years, get out of my office. But instead of that, he opens a drawer, he pulls out a document, he blows on it, like a cloud of dust flies off of it. And he says, this is a script I wrote for a game eight years ago. Why don't you build it for us and we'll sell it? And I'm like, that sounds great. And he says, how are you going to build it? And I had no technical skills at all. (laughs) But I had a friend who knew Visual Basic. I'm like, maybe my friend will teach me. So I tell him, I'm going to build it in Visual Basic. And he says, isn't that like reinventing the wheel? Why don't you build it in Director? So I tell him, look, if we're going to be working together, then of course I have to adapt to your business practices. I'll build in Director. So he has his uh, assistant print out like a one-page memorandum of understanding or something. I sign it. We shake hands. I go home. I open up Google, which is like brand new. And I'm like, what is Director? (laughs) (laughs) And I worked on this game like on and off for two years and change, restarted like you know, from scratch a couple times along the way as I developed some actual skills to be able to do this. Finished the whole thing, looked at the game, I'm like, this game sucks. The script is terrible. Never saw the shelves, but this was like my my introduction to learning how to do this. And they did hire me for some contract work for other games. So it, it was a wonderful opportunity. I'm super grateful wow. to the guy who gave it to me. Wow, that's incredible. It also is one of the first lessons I don't know if it's a rule or a lesson, but that if you're an entrepreneur and someone asks, can you, you say yes, and then you go figure it out. <laughs> now, for a while, I felt like that was disingenuous. I was like, well, that doesn't feel right. Cause if I can't, then I should be honest. But I think that w- what was really being shared in that lesson was that you're going to have to figure out along the way, anyhow. If you feel aligned with the work and you know that you can do it, even if you haven't done it yet, believe in your capability to learn and to grow. And through that, you will be able to deliver. You will be able to make progress. You will be able to get closer to that goal. It sounds like that's exactly what you applied in your first opportunity of really flexing that muscle of being an entrepreneur. Well done. Well, you want to hear the question a little bit differently. When someone says, can you do this? You don't want to hear the, you don't want to hear the question as kind of asking for an assessment of your current and presumably never to change or evolve or grow skill set. You want to see it as a question of plausible trajectory over the time frame of the project. So it's not, do you know how to do this now? It's right. is it plausible that you could develop the skills to do this over over this time frame? And it, it can be very uncomfortable, but it's also really important to sit in that ambiguity of, I don't know, but maybe. Um, There's this great book called Nonsense by Jamie Holmes about the flexibility of thinking that goes into kind of seeing something and saying, well, I don't know, but let's think about it. Let's explore. And our initial rush to certainty is often wrong. So we all have these stories. An example from me would be, uh, we do virtual events in my company. And we used to do in-person events. And for years, we would do these in-person events. And people would ask, hey, can you do this event online? I can't fly in, but I really want to attend. And my perspective was always, no, there's no way this would work online. There's no way it would work virtually. And if we had to, maybe we could figure it out in four or six months. And then, of course, COVID happened. And COVID happened like three weeks before our event was supposed to happen. So, I mean... Yes, sleepless nights and everyone working super hard and it was duct tape and chicken wire. But in the span of three weeks, we spun up this event and it was virtual and it was great. And we learned a ton, but 
when you kind of put parameters in, not, you know, do you know how to do this right now, but could you plausibly figure it out? And if you had to, how would you approach it? It's interesting where where your mind will go and what creativity will emerge. Absolutely. Well, it's also, you know, why developing a growth mindset is so important in work and in life, because we're so limited by what we think we know, as opposed to remaining curious. And on, in that space of curiosity, the possibilities are limitless, right? And you may not know, but someone else may know. You may not have it now, but you may be on your way to getting it. And so again, there's so many other variables that are outside of your knowing where once you develop that kind of perspective, more more of an expansive perspective, it does create more room for opportunity. Yeah. And and it's about expanding the perspective, but also shifting the focus. So there are all these uh, sayings from, you know, from Albert Einstein to Abraham Lincoln to, you know, if I had... X amount of time to accomplish Y, I would spend most of it on the problem, not the solution, right? I'd spend most of the time sharpening the ax. I would spend most of the time thinking about the question. But if you don't jump to with that urgency of, I need to find a solution, how am I going to do this? Where you're not looking at the parameters of the question. You're not looking at what are we really solving for? This is the question I ask my clients, the people I work with, uh, people on my team all the time. If, they, if you were to ask anyone who works with me, what does Danny ask more than anything? They're going to say, what are we solving for, mm. right? In a conversation, in a strategy session, in, it's like, okay, wait, guys, stop. What are we solving for? Like, what are we actually trying to accomplish right now? And the more you sit with that, the more the constraints that are artificial that don't really need to be there tend to fall away. Mm, I love that. I love that perspective. Now, in the current company, Mericy, you know, again, you mentioned that this is about helping entrepreneurs to develop these online courses. How did you switch into that space? It sounds like you may have always found your way there because your background starting with, you know, creating some educational uh, platforms and, and services. When did you decide and why did you decide to focus mainly on helping entrepreneurs to create these online courses? Because I mean, the journey of online courses is up and down and around and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, how do we even jump into this? What made you decide to create that as a focus? What were you trying to solve? Yeah. So it happened very much by accident and led by what my market was telling me. So in the very early days of this business, I was doing what most people do, kind of trying to figure out what works and how to get noticed and how to get the word out about what I was doing and all that kind of stuff. And um, there's a secret to doing all that, which is it's not about hitting on the exact right idea. It's about testing lots of things and having like a fast cycle time. So I tried a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff didn't work, but some of it did. And I did more of what worked and less of what didn't. And there was one strategy in particular, which I mean, we can go into if you want, but it's not relevant. The landscape has changed a lot, but it worked well at the time. And people started to notice and I was doing more and more of it. And I started to get a lot of unsolicited emails, like a handful of emails every week saying, hey, can you teach me how to do this thing you're doing? And uh, my response, of course, being uh, young, naive, and stubborn was, no, that's not what I do. Um, but thankfully the emails kept coming and I eventually got to a point where I was like, you know, it would be really nice to make some money. So even if it's not what I think I want my business to be about, let's just do it. And so I said, I'll teach a course about this thing. Um, it was a particular marketing guest posting strategy. And I put it out to my audience, people who were following me, which was not a huge group of time, but you know, there were a couple thousand people. And I was like, let's give it a shot. Who knows if enough people sign up, I'll do it. If not, I'll refund everyone. and, And that'll be that. 
Well, tons of people signed up. It was hugely successful. I mean, I think it was like a hundred people in the first weekend and, you know, 1500 over the course of the first year. And because I have a background in education, I'm fascinated by how people learn and I care about building something that works. The course was good. And so people would go through the course and they would implement what I'm teaching them. And like that year, I think it was 2012, like you couldn't find a major blog on the internet that didn't have posts written by my students. Mm -hmm. And so people are getting these results and they would come back and they would say all kinds of different questions, but like paraphrasing, underlying it all, it was something to the effect of, you know, hey, now that I know how to write this post and get on this major blog, does that mean I know everything I need to know about my business? And my response was like, no, of course not. Why would, you, why would you think that? There's so much more. And my business had been growing and I'd figured out a lot of things at the time. Of course, you know, today I know a lot more than I did then, but, you know, I knew more then than I did previously. I was like, well, I'll tell you what, let's, I'll, I'll teach you what I've figured out so far. The same thing, I put a presentation together, delivered a webinar, and I said, if people are interested, you can apply here. And if you want, you know, if enough people are interested, maybe I'll do this. And I delivered this webinar and I had people sign up. I made $42,000 over the course of a weekend. And this was like, you know, more money than I'd made in most years prior to that. Um, this was the first, you know, I, I would talk to friends and they're like, you made how much? Legally? Right? Like, how, how does that work? <laughs> You're like, and not selling cream sodas too. <laughs> exactly. So, no. so I do the second course. And again, you know, I'm working with people and that becomes a, a more involved program. And I enroll a lot more people. That becomes my first million dollar program. And a while later, people start coming back to me and they say, you know, Danny, I've taken two of your courses now and I go through the course, I do the work and I'm getting results, but I've taken a lot of other courses and they just sit on my hard drive and I never do anything with them. Can you teach me how to create courses like you, like you've created courses? And so that was 2013 when I shifted into, okay, yes, I can teach you how to create courses the way I do. And I haven't looked back. I've I've uh, trained many, many thousands of course creators. I've written multiple books on the topic. I'm working on another one now. And if I saw, I think you have like nine out there. Is that number correct? Uh, it depends how you count uh, okay. eight and 12 books altogether, but they're not all about courses, but you know, right, three or right, four right, right. Business are yep. definitely mm-hmm. about courses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, if I dabbled, dabbled. I do not have the the experience that you do or any of your students, that's for sure. But from what I know about the online course creation process, it is not just as easy as sitting in front of a computer, a camera, what have you, telling people what you know, uploading it, and then hoping that your followers are going to purchase it. It is deep. It is complex. There are several moving parts that you have to consider. And I think the biggest moving part is how technology continues to change year over year, but also how we digest content. It changes so much year over year. What would you say? What have you What have you seen, I would ask, are some of the biggest challenges that these online entrepreneurs and course creators are facing? And What's the biggest challenge they're facing today? And how would you encourage them to overcome that challenge? Yeah, sure. So it hasn't actually changed as much as people think. The the biggest issue is that the online courses space have what's called a a bicycle shed problem. So Mm -hmm. the idea of a bicycle shed problem is that if, you know, if you ask me, Danny, you know, I'm thinking about building a nuclear reactor, any thoughts? I'm going to be like, no, what do I know about that? (laughs) 
But if you ask me, you know, Danny, I'm not, I'm thinking about building a bicycle shed. Any thoughts? Even though I have no expertise in that. I'm like, I've seen bicycle sheds, simple enough. Yeah, I can give you some pointers, right? It has the illusion because we see online courses so much and we've been exposed to education over our lifetime. It has the impression of you knowing more about it than you do. But of course, the fact that you might've gone through some courses doesn't mean you understand how to use them, right? I've, I've flipped a lot of light switches in my life. That doesn't make me an electrician. I've flushed a lot of <laughs> toilets. doesn't make me a plumber, yeah. right? And so that's the core issue. So cosmetically, if you go through a course, you're like, yeah, I've got a bunch of videos and maybe I've got a membership and maybe I've got some links here. And we try to approximate that on a very surface level. That's a little bit like if you ask a three-year-old, how do you make a birthday cake? They're going to say, well, you need sprinkles and you need candles. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not wrong, but that's also very incomplete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the core, there, there are two problems that people bump up against when they're looking to create online courses. One is that it is a product and you need to get it to a market, right? Going into your back cave, creating something, then hoping for the best tends not to work. And so, you know, the, the offer market alignment issue, but then on the actual creating an offer, creating a product, creating the course side, what we think a course should look like and what a good course actually does look like are quite different. Mm-hmm. So very simply, there, there are three steps to developing a level of competence in anything. The first step is consuming information. So that's where you listen to the audio, you read the text, you watch the video, et cetera. I learned something, and I'm using the word learn in air quotes here. I learned something I don't yet know. Now, this is a very cursory level of knowledge. Right? That's very good for learning about things. It's not very good for learning to do things. Right. It's a little bit like the, you know, that opening scene in the karate kid where he's trying to learn karate from a book. Right. <laughs> you don't get very good in that way. But you do need to be exposed to the information somehow. That's the first step. Second step is where we apply. We try to do it ourselves. And that application can be theoretical or it can be practical. And then the third step is where we get feedback that allows us to improve. Now, the good news is that there will always be feedback. The bad news is that it may be very unnuanced or unhelpful, right? So if I decide that I want to learn how to skateboard, I don't need a teacher. I don't need a guide. I'm going to get feedback, but it's going to be from concrete and gravity. I was going to say from falling. So where an instructor, a teacher, a course creator comes into the picture is I can explain something to you, here are the videos and all that, but then I engineer an opportunity for you to apply and then get feedback that is helpful and timely for you to improve. Most of the learning happens with the application and improvement, and most course creators are focused on, here's a video of me explaining things, which doesn't actually help people get good at anything. Right, right. It doesn't create that lasting impact. It's just a, a momentary learning opportunity. Honestly, you could you could learn it, but as you just mentioned, are you applying it? And is it actually something that is going to take root in your life? Well, and are you going to develop a certain amount of skill, muscle memory? Like mm-hmm. think of when we're designing a course, you always want to start not with what do I want to teach, but what will this person want to learn? Mm-hmm. And you want to go a few levels deep right? At the end of the course, what do, what do I want them to be able to do? But not only what do I want them to be, able to, to be able to do, how well do I want them to be able to do it and under what circumstances, mm. right? Because how well will vary a lot. If, if you say, Danny, can you teach me Hamlet? Well, 
how well do you want to know it, right? If, if you just want to know the high level story in 10 seconds, like, yeah, that's easy. It's the Lion King, but with people instead of lions, that's not hard. If you want to go much deeper in the intricacies of the story, I probably can't help you. If you want to learn how to recite it or even perform it, right? Very different levels of skill. Now, if we're talking about a performance, is it like reading off a page or is it without a script in front of an audience of a thousand people, very different levels of expectation. If I'm teaching you- And different levels of preparation. Bingo, right? If I'm mm-hmm. teaching you, I don't know, active listening skills, is this about, you know, do I want to be able to do it in a very controlled pretend exercise or in the middle of a heated argument about something that is important to you with someone who's super hostile? Mm-hmm. Very different levels of skill. So you start with that outcome and then you work backwards. Okay, what's it going to take to get somebody there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh my gosh. Working backwards. (laughs) It is actually how I help to uh, keep my mind sane. So many things juggling. I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? Let me back up here. I mean, that right there in itself is uh, an efficiency tool that has helped me through a lot of different areas of life and work. I'm imagining that uh, one more question in regards to some of the challenges that uh, course creators may be facing. We are, again, living in a time where online courses, there's a plethora. You can find, you can pick one topic and find maybe a hundred or maybe even thousands, depending on the topic, different offerings for that solution, air quotes happening here. But one of the things that I've heard and seen that it becomes a challenge is because it's so saturated, these course creators or these entrepreneurs are struggling to grow their audience. That is actually how they're going to generate revenue from their courses. Because I feel like, how am I going to find my place? How am I going to attract people in? Do you have any advice on how these individuals can, I don't know if it's breakthrough or really, I would just say, how can they overcome that struggle of trying to grow their audience? Yeah, so it's very doable, but it really requires a shift in thinking that is a little counterintuitive at first, but like once people get, they're like, you can't unsee it sort of thing. So a lot of people came into this world of online business and online courses drawn by this magical lure of passive income, right? I want to build a a magical money machine that will, you know, automatically fill my bank account while I'm, you know, sleeping on the beach. (laughs) And it doesn't usually work out. There's the old thing that, you know, online entrepreneurs are people who work 120 hours a week so they can make money while they sleep, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it doesn't really work um, in practice, but there's a reason why it doesn't work. There's some really simple business math that goes into passive income. And so if you want to create passive income, you need two ingredients. You need a low price product, and the reason it has to be low priced is that if it's high priced, then selling it and delivering it will not be passive, mm-hmm. right? People expect a sales process and a conversation. If it's expensive, they expect you to show up and deliver in a meaningful way if it costs a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's not passive. And so you need a low price product and you have to multiply that low price by a very large volume mm-hmm. because a low price times a small volume is might be passive, but it's not much money. So it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Now, The problem with that is that you take your retail price of whatever you're selling, and it's going to split more or less three ways. About a third is going to go towards fulfillment, right? Delivering the experience that you promise to people. About a third will be contribution profit to pay off your overhead and maybe, you know, be cash in the bank, depending on volume. The last 
third is what goes to customer acquisition, doing the stuff that will get the customer in the door in the first place, your marketing, your sales activities. Now, here's where it all breaks down. If you have a low price product, well, you take a low price, you divide that by three, you've got a third of that left. That's not very much money with which to acquire the customer. If you can't afford to acquire a customer, then you're in this catch-22 forever of not enough sales, therefore not enough marketing, therefore not enough sales, therefore not enough marketing, and you can't break out of it. So there are exceptions. You can make it work if you have an unfair advantage working in your favor, right? If you were one of the first people who blew up on TikTok, then you can get essentially a disproportionate amount of leads at no cost. You know, if you have a huge audience already, right? The Kylie Jenner strategy for growing a business. Kylie Cosmetics went from zero to a billion dollars in five years. No marketing budget, but 150 million followers. Right. Right. So if you have one of those unfair advantages, it's different. But if you don't, the passive income formula doesn't work. What you can do is not try to sell something cheap, try to sell something expensive that justifies the premium. And it's not a saturated space in the way that the rest of the course space is because most people don't want to go there. But if instead of selling the $100 or $200 course that you can't really afford to market, you sell the $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 course that comes with support that actually helps people experience a transformation, you can afford to do the marketing. You don't need a giant audience anymore. And that is the kind of business that it's not passive, but it's very lucrative and very rewarding for the people who choose to pursue it. That's how I've helped a lot of people create a lot of impact and a lot of wealth. Well, and that's where it comes down to, right? It's the impact. Because if you are thinking about, if when I think about creating this course, it's because I know that not everybody is going to hear me speak on a stage. And I know that this content can help a lot of people. Actually, that was the reason why I wanted to write a book is because I'm like, I got to get this in as many hands as possible because I know that it's helpful. And I have found that a lot of course creators, the reason why they want to, maybe one is for passive income. Sure. We all want to generate that income. We want that kind of financial freedom, if you will. And it usually comes from multiple uh, pathways. So I understand that. But really what I hear is the heart of these individuals. And they're saying, I want to make an impact. I want to go as as far as I can. And, And then what happens is instead of going for that higher price point, they go for the lower because they don't want the price to become a barrier for this product, this course that they hope mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, it's going to change someone's life. I can see the conundrum. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's counterintuitive, but when you when you go down that route, the math just doesn't work and it won't change anybody's life because mm. a course that is essentially a book on tape, right? Here's a video of me explaining some things. That's the, they consume the information. There's no application. There's no feedback they don't actually experience a transformation, which is why it's cheap. It's not worth very much. Nobody's going to pay a lot for that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? It's that deeper, because here's the thing, a book and a course are different. They're not just different media. They're different things that do different things for the people who go through them. So a book mm-hmm. is great for showing someone what is possible, for expanding their horizons. It is not, you don't get good at things by reading a book. Now, a, a book on tape type course, you know, it's easy to distribute, but it's not worth much more than a book would be. It doesn't create that transformation. So for most people who deliver a real transformation in their one-on-one work, you know, you're, you're several orders of magnitude up in price from what a book or a $50 course would be. And so the course can be a really good middle ground 
it does create a ton of leverage. I love that. Thank you so much. I think that's going to help so many people, especially those who really want to spread their message and offer different products and, and make sure that they're helping people on a wider range. Uh, I think that clarity is really going to help them to move forward in a more meaningful way. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Danny, you are definitely living out your gifts. <laughs> I know that I can only imagine there's going to be so many other ventures that come from your, your, your genius gift set. So thank you so much. Thank you for staying in the game. <laughs> and I appreciate you sharing all of this knowledge freely and transparently with our audience today. It's totally my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcasts.